Hey, everybody, and welcome to another episode of PAS FML, the only podcast run by an actual, real-life, current PA student. That's me. <laughs> That's me. Are you guys getting sick and tired of my little catchphrase here when I when I start the show? I mean, I have to I have to do something, right? Like I need to have a thing, kind of. Um, anyway, it's funny and it makes me laugh. I don't know if you've realized this yet, but I do a lot of things for my own enjoyment. So anyway, <laughs> welcome to the show. Thanks for tuning in, everyone. Uh, what are we doing? What are we doing today? That's a great question. So today we are going to pick up kind of where I left off uh, from the previous episode of this because uh, that one was talking about urgent care slash primary care. And I had really intended to do a much better kind of smattering of all of the like the top 10 things that I saw that came into the clinic most often. But I got so bogged down in talking about hypertension, uh, which of course is understandable. It, there's a lot to talk about that there, um, that it pretty much monopolized most of the episode. So uh, I'm going to be smarter about this one with the lipid disorders, and that's all that I'm going to be covering this time. So it's just lipid disorders, and hopefully that should keep this episode way short. So let's get going. Actually, and doesn't it feel like I always have an actually? Sorry, guys. But actually, I wanted to give a prophylactic apology, so a profipology, profipology for the sound quality, both of the previous episode of the urgent care and then also for the uh, review of lipid disorders that you're about ready to listen to. So the quick story behind that was... While it was awesome that I was in my lush, tropical, beautiful paradise uh, on rotation just now, that means I wasn't home. And so I didn't have my fancy recording equipment, and I didn't even have a really good place to record in, which amounted essentially to me sitting in this teeny little closet, like, and, and not even a nice walk-in closet, like the kind of closet that I grew up with having as a kid and there was not there wasn't even a light in it and so it's not like I could sit in it and close the door because I had to leave the door cracked a little bit so that I could read the notes but because it was hot and humid in outside I also had to have the air conditioning running so anyway all of the all of that amounts to a not ideal recording quality so I'm really sorry about that um so the quality of that you're about ready to hear is about ready to get a little bit worse than this here. But, uh, you know, uh, that doesn't mean I love you any less. And it's just kind of a good life lesson, right? You do what you can with the things that you have and the time that you have, and you give it your best shot. Uh, it's actually a pretty good analogy for getting <laughs> getting through PA school. Um, so that's my profi-pology. Let's get panic studying. <laughs> Okay, lipid disorders. There's two flavors of lipid disorders, hypercholesterolemia and hypertriglyceridemia. So we're basically looking at high LDL for hypercholesterolemia and hypertri... 
hypertriglyceridemia, which is, of course, high triglycerides. Um, all right, so who are we screening? I believe the age that we start is 35 for men and 45 for women. Uh, I, I believe. Don't quote me on that. Y'all need to fact check me, people. Um, and then write in or leave me a message and tell me uh, when I get things wrong, because that helps me, that helps you uh, to go look it up. So anyway, I'm going to go with men age 35, women age 45, even if they don't have any risk factors. Moving on. Pearl that I got from Urgent Care is that if somebody does a lipid panel, if, a, if you pull a lipid panel on your patient when they're not fasting, their triglycerides will actually be more elevated than their LDL, meaning eating food affects your triglycerides more than it does on your LDL. So this is why we want these lipid panels pulled when the patient is in a fasting state, meaning no food for at least eight hours. And apparently the upper limit of that is about 12 hours because after a fasting state greater than 12 hours, apparently you can get some funky things show up and you might not be able to trust your lipid panel as well. I don't know the mechanism behind that. This is just what I was told. So we're going to go with fasting of at least eight hours. Um, and then again, the reason why the, the triglycerides can be affected by eating is because your triglycerides are actually affected by your refined carbs and your alcohol. And that's going to come into play a little bit later on when we talk about, well, how should we manage either one of these two lipid disorders? Triglycerides are going to be most affected by refined carbs and alcohol. So... Those are the things that you're going to tell your patient to cut out or reduce if they've got a big um, spike in their trigs. Um, and then LDL is your saturated and your trans fat. So that's something that you can tell your patient to cut down on if their LDL is high. Obviously, cut both of those things out if both of those things are high. Uh, okay, guess we covered that right now. So moving on. Um, next up, I wanted to give a buzzword at you because I actually saw it in clinical practice um, and this is something that is a buzzword that goes with high LDL, and that is Arcus senilis, also known as corneal Arcus. Um, so Arcus, A-R-C-U-S, like an arc, like a circle. And so this is like a cloudy white or bluish circle, halo, if you will, seen around the cornea. Um, so it was... I didn't know what I was looking at because I'd completely forgotten what the hell this thing even was. But I saw it in a female patient of mine just when I was like doing a normal pupil check for her. I couldn't believe it, but like the cornea, which I e if you recall, is the colored part of the eye. So whatever color your eyes are, that's your cornea. Um, and so I looked at I looked at her eyes and I was like, oh my! I mean, obviously not allowed. Again, got a good poker face here. But I was like, what is this like perfectly circular halo? on the ring on the rim of her cornea because I knew it wasn't glaucoma because glaucoma goes more in the center and creates like this cloudiness. Um, so it was just a ring around the rim. Um, and that is again, Arcus senilis, AKA corneal Arcus. Maybe that'll be used on the pants. Um, but it is a white or bluish ring around the, um, around, um, the iris. Did I just say cornea that whole time? Oh my God guys, I'm sorry, uh, using the wrong words here. It's a white or bluish ring around the iris because of 
lipid deposits there. Okay, so high lipids. All right, moving on. Let's talk about how to diagnose cholesterol. What are the cutoffs, right? What are the normal values for cholesterol? So there's three that we need to put in our brain. Total cholesterol needs to be below 200. We're happy if your total cholesterol is below 200. Next up, your LDL, right? And I always got confused about which one, what's LDL, what's HDL. One of them we want to be low, one of them we want to be high. Guess what? It tells us right there in its name, turns out. Um, LDL, you can think of L standing for low and lousy. It's the lousy cholesterol. We don't want it. It's the, quote, bad cholesterol. So we want it nice and low. Um, HDL stands for happy and high. You want your HDL uh, nice and high because that's the good cholesterol that actually fights the bad cholesterol. So that's how I remember things. If it doesn't work for you, great. You've got a better brain than me and you can just remember things based on what they actually are. But uh, for me, this is how I do it. So um, LDL, we want that below 100, right? Low and lousy. HDL, we want that above six, excuse me, above 40. And above 60 is actually considered a high HDL and that's awesome. Um, so again, numbers, total cholesterol under 200, LDL under 100, HDL over 40 and over 60 is considered high. Now, going back to that LDL, the you can break LDL down into what's borderline high, what's high, what's very high. I'm only going to put one number in my head because it makes a difference based on treatment. So I'm only putting greater than 190 as very high in my head for an LDL number. Uh, again, and that's because it's related to who are we going to treat. So recap. Here's the numbers. Total cholesterol was under what? Under 200. LDL was under what? Under 100. HDL, the happy and high cholesterol, was over what? 40. We want that over 40. Over what is considered awesome? 60. On your LDL, what's considered very high? What's the number? 190. So there's our numbers. There's our cutoffs for cholesterol. Uh, all right. Who are we, we going to treat? Now, this was totally redone um, according to some dumb named guideline called ATP4. Um, and so that's the one that I'm going to put in my brain right now. Although it's entirely possible that the pants is going to have, according to ATP3, which obviously was the version before 4, and then you'll have to, you'll have to know that. So I don't know where I'm going to land on what I'm going to study, but for right now, because, uh, I'm trying to get into what are we doing now clinically that's relevant. I'm going to stick with the ATP four stuff because that's what we're doing right now. So according to ATP four, they kind of redid things. The version before it actually gave you numbers to target actual, like here's the lower cholesterol that we want for you. And they actually gave you a number based on where you started from ATP four totally did away with that and basically basically just said, yeah, we just, if your cholesterol is out of whack, we're going to start you essentially on a high intensity statin. Um, but we can break that down a little bit more and say that there are four main groups of people that they studied that they figured out would benefit from starting a statin. So Kind of like with hypertension, no matter what, if you've got one of these cholesterol things, either too much LDL or too much triglycerides, if you've got one of those out of whack, first thing we're going to do is lifestyle modifications. And I already, I already talked about that. For your 
uh, LDL stuff that is more influenced by your saturated and trans fat. So cut out the fried foods. And then um, on the triglycerides, that's more of your alcohol and your refined carbs. So cut those goodies out. Uh, all right. So everybody gets diet changes if they come up with high, H, high LDL or high trigs. But here's the groups that we want to put on statins. And the first two groups, there's, well, there's four total. The first two groups get a high intensity statin and the last two groups either get high or moderate. And again, this goes back to the ASCVD risk. So again, keep in mind, what, what did ASCVD mean? Because we talked about it for hypertension. So we're going to break down the word again. Atherosclerotic, meaning cholesterol plaques, and then cardiovascular disease, meaning your heart and your arteries. So your ASCVD risk is just a buildup of cholesterol plaques in your heart and your arteries. Okay, so um, the first group of people is patients up to age 75 with known ASCVD. So they've got, they've already had some sort of cholesterol plaque buildup in their heart and their arteries that caused a problem. So who are these people? These are, these are patients who have already had acute coronary syndrome. Okay. What does that mean? Well, it's a spectrum of disorders and it includes unstable angina and both of your MIs. So your end stemmies and your stemmies. So people with acute coronary syndrome, they've already had something that they already have um, unstable angina or they've already had an MI. These are your people who have known ASCVD. And if they're under age 75, you're putting them immediately on a statin. Now there's other people in this, um, people who've had a stroke or a TIA, people with known peripheral RDO, um, peripheral artery disease. These are also people who have known ASCVD, atherosclerotic coronary um, vascular disease. So essentially, these are people who we already know have had cholesterol plaque issues because they've experienced a thing that was on the list that I just mentioned. So what are we aiming for? They're, they have already got the disease, right? Like, so why are we even putting them on a statin? They've already got the disease. Well, this is where that buzzword of secondary prevention comes in. I always glossed over that because I was like, there's too many words. I can't read any of this. But you got, if you just think about it a little bit, like I said, they've already got the disease. So what are we even bothering to do? We are bothering for secondary prevention. We want to prevent a recurrence of another cardiovascular disease event. So essentially, this is an MI or CVA or complications that are already ongoing from their, like, per, per maybe their peripheral artery disease. So we are doing secondary prevention in these people. Um, and a statin is super helpful for that. So your patient's like, well, I've already had a heart attack or a stroke doesn't matter. It's possible that you could have another one. Here's your statin. Uh, so that's group one. Patients under age 75 with known ASCVD already. All right. Why do I keep mentioning the age 75? What's so important about being under or over 75? Well, according to the guidelines, if your patient is over 75, it's totally reasonable that they might want to continue going on uh, a moderate or high intensity statin. You just need to talk to the patient um, essentially and talk about the side effects. If they were already on it before and they just like had a 75th birthday and they were tolerating it fine, it's totally fine to keep them on it. But that 75 is kind of a cutoff for it. Yeah, 
maybe we can go off it. Maybe we can just continue it. Um, talk to your patient, turns out. All right, group, group number two. Patients over the age of 21 with an LDL that is considered very high. So a few minutes ago, we talked about what the breakdown is in LDL brackets. And I said the only other number that I'm putting in my brain is what's considered very high because it drives treatment. So patients over the age of 21 with an LDL of 190, i.e. have very high LDL values, put them on a statin. Okay, fantastic. Um, And so in this group, we are aiming for primary prevention. So meaning they don't have cardiovascular disease yet. So we're going to try to keep it that way. Here's your statin. So in granny and grandpa who've already had a heart attack or a stroke, we are putting them on a statin for secondary prevention. But your 37-year-old who's got an LDL over 190, they don't have any of the other things on the list just yet. And that's good. Let's keep it that way. Here's your statin, buddy. Um, Okay, third group. Uh, Diabetics have a lower threshold for their LDL. In normal people, we just said it was over 190, right? People with no diabetes, no cardiovascular uh, known disease. LDL, 190 and above, here's your statin. Diabetics, lower threshold, 70, right? That's like less than half of it or some number that I can't do math with. Uh, so 70, which is crazy because officially, what is cons- what was the number for where we want our LDL to be at? It was under 100. So, I mean, according to these guidelines, if a diabetic comes in and their LDL is officially under 100, but maybe it's 80, 80 is greater than 70, officially we're supposed to be putting them on a statin. Uh, so that's kind of crazy. Um, and, that, and that's essentially because um, having diabetes is like an equivalent for have already having um, like a uh, cardio, uh, cardiovascular issues. It's like an, it's like an, it's an equivalent. Um, so that's why we're treating them more aggressively. Um, it's considered primary prevention. Again, we don't want to wait until they hit 190 because diabetics already have a higher risk. So their thresholds at 70. And this is one of the, uh, unusual groups because most those first two groups that we t- I talked about are going to get a high statin, right? So if you are up to age 75 and you already have known atherosclerotic uh, cardiovascular disease, you're getting a high statin. If you're over the age of 21 and you have very high LDL levels, you're getting a high intensity statin. But this third group, the diabetics with an LDL over 70, they're a little bit special group because you actually can choose to do a moderate intensity statin. And don't worry, we're going to get there in a minute. What the hell is the difference between moderate and high? I got you. Um, All right. So diabetics, lower threshold for over 70. You can do a moderate intensity statin or a high level intensity statin. And again, something that can help us figure out which one we're going to start on them is to run their 10-year ASCVD risk. Uh, We talked about that with hypertension stuff. Um, This one's a little bit different. If their 10-year ASCVD risk is greater than 7.5, go ahead and choose the high intensity. And now that was a little bit different because when we talked about hypertension meds, the ASCVD risk was calculated at if it's greater than 10% to start medications with them. Um, And I believe that was for stage one hypertension. I should go back and listen to my own podcast. Whoops. Um, So a little bit different here. Diabetics, low threshold of over 70, calculate their ASCVD risk. If it's greater than 7.5, 
put them on a high intensity statin. Otherwise, moderate, moderate intensity will do. All right, last group, right? Fourth group. I said there's four people who are going to benefit from a statin. Here's the fourth group. Non-diabetics, no diabetes, no known ASCVD. They're over the age of 40, but again, under the magic age of 75. And again, their ASCVD risk 10 years is greater than 7.5. So those people, essentially, they've got a higher risk, right? Our cutoff for, are you, do you have a high risk of developing arthrosclerotic disease is greater than or, or higher, excuse me, is at or greater than 7.5. So your last two groups, your diabetics who have an LDL over 70 and your non-diabetics and no known atherosclerotic disease, both of those cutoffs or will run their, won't run their 10-year risk if it's greater than 7.5, throw them on a statin. So a little complicated there. I hope I tried to break that down for all of us, especially myself. Um, but that's, those are your four main groups of people who are going to benefit from a statin use. And essentially, the question is, are we going to use a high intensity statin or moderate intensity statin? Well, the first two groups automatically get the highs and then the last two groups can get a moderate at a high. And the only difference here is um, that basically I want you to put in your brain two names of the high intensity statins because everything else is going to be considered either, either a low or moderate. And we haven't even talked about using a low statin. Like, I don't know when that would be a thing, but I didn't use it in clinical practice and I didn't even see it on the algorithm. So I'm not going to worry about low intensity statins for anybody. So the two high intensity statins are atorvastatin and rosuvastatin. At higher at high doses, these are these are considered high intensity statins. Now if you put them on a lower dose, those are considered moderate intensity statins. But the reason why these two medicines are important is because they're the only ones that if you bump a bump high enough are considered high intensity. All the other ones, which I'm not even going to name right now, all the other statins that aren't atorvastatin and rosuvastatin, even if you put them in high dose, it's still not considered high intensity. So that's why I'm only going to remember atorvastatin and rosuvastatin. And if they are at high doses, like 80 milligrams, I know that's the one for atorvastatin, that's considered high intensity. I don't know if the pants is going to get super into it like that. They may just they may just be nice to us and say, oh, are you going to start a high or a medium or a low intensity statin? Like, that would be great. Um, but anyway, just in case, broke it down a little bit more. Um, so we're going to use a high intensity statin, atorvastatin or rosuvastatin. And what are we, what are we treating to, right? What's our goals? Well, like I already said, there's no recommended specific target numbers for LDLs, um, or triglycerides in the ATP4. Okay. Fantastic. Um, that's just how, that's just how it is. So, um, I want to finish up talking about statins because, um, uh, we need to talk about the side effects. So the main side effects for statin use is myalgias. And I know I have some professors who would vehemently disagree that that's even a thing, but man, man, I saw it in clinical practice. People absolutely complained about myalgias. Um, and then also, uh, elevated LFTs, which really didn't turn out to be an issue in real life, other than for people with known liver problems. Um, other than that, we really didn't worry about it. But officially, for the boards, 
they want us to get baseline um, LFTs and then recheck the LFTs. I think it was within six weeks of starting the um, statin. If the LFTs didn't bump, they were unlikely to bump after about six weeks. And uh, if the patient was going to develop myalgias, it sounds like they're more likely to do it when they first get on it. Um, so side effects of statin, myalgia, and elevated LFTs such that you may even need to get a baseline um, LFT from them. All right, that was hypercholesterol, so high LDL. Um, let's finish up with hypertriglycerides. So a buzzword here is severely high triglycerides risk acute pancreatitis. Totally a buzzword. I didn't see it in real life, but it's a thing. So um, let's put some numbers to that. The ideal number for your triglycerides is under 150. So right there, right in between your total cholesterol and your LDL. So LDL was under 100. Triglycerides are right in the middle at 150. Total cholesterol under 200. Um, so for triglycerides, again, under 150, high actually starts at 200. So high triglycerides starts at 200 and severely high triglycerides where we're going to start to risk acute pancreatitis is over 500. That's a shit ton. <laughs> that's, that's a lot. I actually didn't see that in clinical practice. I saw, um, I saw a handful of people that were actually over the high at 200, but I didn't see anybody with triglycerides as high as um, as severely high as over 500. So uh, that's kind of a boards thing, but I'm sure you'll see it in real life the more patients I see. All right. So for hypertriglyceridemia, the med of choice, the medication of choice, if it's only triglycerides, right? For whatever reason, their LDL is fine. Their total cholesterol is fine. If they just have isolated hypertriglyceridemia, what's the medication we want to use? Anybody know? I didn't know. I totally forgot. It's a fibrate, guys. It's your good it's your good friend, Gemfibrazil. That's who we're gonna throw at these isolated hypertriglyceride people. Um, so fibrates fight triglycerides. Um, and then the common name, Gemfibrazil. And this apparently works like gangbusters. It's gonna drop their triglycerides by 40 to 80%, and special bonus, it increases their HDL only by a little bit, 10 to 20, but still like that's badass. So hypertriglyceridemia, we want your trigs below 150. You risk pancreatitis if it's greater than 500, though officially high triglyceride starts at 200. Throw a, fi a fibrate at them because it's going to drop their triglycerides especially. Um, other options, we can use our good old Fred the Statins again, and especially that's, that's going to be something that we're going to reach for, obviously, if they've got uh, cholesterol, right? If, if their LDL is too high and their trigs are too high, toss a statin at them because the statin's going to lower their trigs for them as well. Um, we can also use niacin and actually even fish oil. So that's kind of cool. Um, but let's see. So out of the three medicines I just said, fibrates, statins, and niacin, one of them may cause flushing. This is a buzzword. One of them may cause flushing. Which one is it? It's niacin. Awesome. So niacin in the treatment of hypertriglyceridemia may cause flushing. How are we going to treat it? Daily aspirin. Put it in your brain. It's a buzzword. Moving on. Who are we screening? What, at what age do we start screening for high triglycerides? Age 20. 
And if that's fine and the patient is healthy, we don't have to do it for another five years. So that's great. So how many of you people are are <laughs> over age 20 and have never had your tri triglycerides checked? Yeah, guess what? Next time you go see your PCP, turns out you should be asking to have your triglyceride level pulled. Uh, personally, I'm over 30 and I've never had it checked. So whoops, totally should have been doing that since before we could even have a beer legally. So that's crazy. So age 20, start screening your people every five years if they're healthy. Um, and if uh, patients have cardiovascular disease, diabetes, or a family history of high triglycerides, you actually need to do it yearly. Um, so put that in your brain. Um, and then we already talked about what's general treatment um, for hypertriglycerides. Low fat, carb controlled, avoid the sugar, right? Avoid all the fun things. Um, and then we can actually, this is where like the fish oil comes back into play. I already said that the fish oil helps um, to uh, bring down triglyceride levels, but you can actually do it naturally by increasing your oily fishes, so like your salmons, to at least twice a week. So eat more fish, everybody. We all should be doing that. Nom, nom, nom. Um, and then we are, I already said at the top of the lecture that significantly reducing your alcohol or, of course, stopping completely and quitting smoking are really going to affect your triglycerides. And then the age-old truth is always true, 30 minutes of exercise five times a week. Okay, so that was a pretty good dive on all things lipid disorders. And I want to spend just a few minutes here going back and tying up some loose ends and giving a little bit more details on some of those medications that we just talked about. So going back all the way back to the beginning of the talk, we talked all about statins and how we use them as first line in hypercholesteremia. Um, however you say that at this point. Um, and that's definitely true, but I wanted to give some numbers about uh, the high versus the moderate intensity statins. So do you remember the two statins that can be considered high intensity statins? Think, think. It was atorvastatin and rosuvastatin. So here's the doses of them to be, in order to be considered high intensity. Uh, 40 or 80 milligrams of the atorvastatin is considered high intensity, and rosuvastatin is either 20 to 40 milligrams. So essentially, anything over 40 milligrams, if you see it on the exam, that's going to be considered a high-intensity statin. And hopefully it's attached to either atorvastatin or rosuvastatin because if if it's not, then the answer isn't it's a high-intensity statin. Um, so I, I really don't think that the pants is going to get that involved. But just for your, again, just for your own edification here, because at the end of the day, yeah, we're tr we need to pass the boards in order, of course, to uh, be PAs, but we also want to help people. Um, so good information to know. Um, and then moderate intensity statins for the atorvastatin is just 10 to 20 and the rosuvastatin is 5 to 10 even. So like if you're going to put a number in your head, it's it's going to be over eh, 20 to 40 is rosuvastatin. But um, anyway, over 40 definitely is considered a high intensity statin. Okay. Um, about statins. Um, they, uh, pro tip to give to your patients, take them at night because apparently in the majority of cholesterol synthesis 
occurs while the body is fasting. So that would, for most of us, be when we're sleeping at nighttime. And I read on Up to Date that 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 taking at night is not necessarily doesn't apparently hold so true for the high intensity statins, which we just spent all this time talking about, about how get your people on them. Um, it's got something to do with half lives. And so apparently the half life of those medications are a little bit more stable because they're so strong, I guess. Um, uh, so maybe if you can actually get your patient on a high intensity statin, maybe they don't always have to take it at night. But just in case they don't tolerate the high intensity statin. And we're going to get to that just right here in a quick second. But if the patient doesn't tolerate high intensity statin and you have to drop them to a moderate intensity statin, now this little tidbit that I told you just becomes relevant again. So in practice, probably just get your patient in the habit of taking their statin at nighttime. All right. So main side effect of statin, which I think we talked about, maybe we didn't, um, is, oh yeah, muscle pain. Uh, and the fancy buzzword for that in real in in medical terminology is rhabdomyolysis rhabdomyolysis and so there is a lab that we can check if somebody newly starts a statin and says oh i've got all these myalgias going on now what do you think that is we're checking for rhabdo i think we even talked about it do you remember it's the creatinine phosphokinase uh, so sometimes it's abbreviated cpk More commonly than not in the hospitals that I worked in, we just called it the CK. So check the CK. Check the creatinine phosphokinase. Um, So that's that's the main side effect with the statin. So on the heels of talking about rhabdo, there is another medication that is huge, huge, huge for don't give it along with a statin because it increases this possible myalgias and rhabdomyolysis. And that is our good old friend, Jamfibrozil. I don't know why I have to say that. I don't know why I say it that way, but I have to. Um, So the classic teaching is don't give statins and fibrates. So Jamfibrozil is a type of fibrate. Um, So the classic teaching, don't give those together because it increases the chances of rhabdo. So much so that I actually went to up to date to look at this information because I was like, is that still true? Turns out it's so true that back in 2016, there were a couple medications that were actually those two medicines combined in one. In 2016, they took those off the market. So it's a big deal. Don't do statins and fibrates together, apparently. Um, Okay, so that's the interaction between statins and fibrates. Now that we've been talking about fibrates, i.e. gemfibrozil, and then there's another one called phenofibrate. I feel like I didn't see that one in, in the real world a lot. Um, so I, I don't know if it's out there, but it could be on the test. So gemfibrozil and phenofibrate are, of course, your fibrates there. Um, so the thing that UpToDate had about them was that they're really not, we really don't use them anymore for anything because apparently they don't even really lower your LDL that well. And they have um, uh, an increased risk of gallstones, which that might just be a buzzword for the pants. Um, But uh, the big thing to take about fibrates is don't put them with statins and they really don't work that well. So in real, in real life, I guess we don't use them too often, but for the pants life, they might, their side effect is possible gallstones. So that's fibrates. Next up, niacin, which aka nicotinic acid. 
And this is another one that we we really don't use in practice anymore, um, largely because they're so poorly tolerated. And I talked about this just now a little bit about the main side effect of niacin. Do you remember what it was? Yes, I am always going to use this kind of pedantic tone. <laughs> um, so the main side effect with niacin is flushing. Um, but apparently it also can um, cause in, an increase in uric acid. So what patient population are we talking about? Who are we worried about? We're worried about our gout patients. So niacin causes flushing. And by the way, per up-to-date, that is in 80% of people. So no wonder why that's like a huge pants buzzword. 80% of people who take niacin are going to have some flushing going on. I mean, you know, flushing in the face, redness, warmth. So that's not good. Uh, And then also the increased uric acid. So we don't want to give it to gout patients. And then it also causes puritis, nausea, vomiting, and diarrhea. That's niacin. Those are the side effects of niacin. Niacin sounds terrible. It's going to give me a red face. I'm going to itch all over the place. I'm going to be nauseous and I'm going to be tied to the bathroom with my vomiting and diarrhea. I mean, that's that sounds so bad. So it uh, turns out we don't give niacin so much anymore because it has a terrible, terrible side effects. And also, according to UpToDate, it really only increases the HDL. So like has no significant impact on your LDL at all. And it only increases the HDL, but I guess they looked into it and that didn't uh, change patient outcome, meaning patients didn't do better. They didn't have like decreased disease and whatnot. So niacin's really apparently not a fantastic drug to use anymore. So statins looking like the reigning champ still, right? Up against fibrates, um, because fibrates can cause rhabdo and gallstones. Up against niacin, niacin gives you a red face, itchy skin, nausea, vomiting, diarrhea. That sounds terrible. Um, so those two options are kind of out the bo- uh, out the uh, off the table. And then finally, oh, semi finally, uh, there's another. Uh, class of medications called the bile acid sequestrants. And these are your resins sash, slash cholestyramine. And the coal, all of them basically start with choli um, because they work a little bit with the gallbladder. Um, and they basically, um, oh no, they're bile acid sequestrants, excuse me. Um, they inhibit the emulsification of triglycerides. So there's where your gallbladder stuff comes comes from, right? The emulsifying um, of the bile with the bile. So everything starts with choli in the bile acid or in the, in the bile sequestration agents. Everything starts with choli. So the main one there is cholestyramine. And then because this one messes with the, emul- with the emulsification, it its side effects are bloating and diarrhea. So again, that that doesn't sound fun either. Really not awesome side effects or really, yeah, yeah, not awesome side effects. And the very, very last one, which I don't remember if we learned about in class or not, um, but it is called ezetimibe, E-Z-E-T-I-M-I-B-E. I don't know in case that helps you. E-Z-E, I don't know. Isn't there a... <laughs> Isn't that a wrapper from like the 90s? Okay, I'm getting off track. Um, Ezetimide. Um, it's the class of medication is a cholesterol absorption inhibitor. So it stops you from soaking up cholesterol. And turns out, according to UpToDate, that 
ezetimibe is that's actually the second line drug that we want to turn to because we just spent like nine minutes now talking about how everything other than a statin is a pretty terrible thing to try because of their side effects. So again, according to up to date, turns out ezetimibe is actually the second most commonly prescribed medication for hypertriglycerides or excuse hyperlipidemias. Um, so that's fantastic. And then buzzword for the pants on ezetimibe is side effect of possible angioedema. So that's the only time that we've seen that side effect um, in talking about these lipid lowering medications. So I suppose that that's interesting and maybe pants worthy. Um, Okay, now, now, I think we did it, guys. I think we actually did a deep dive on lipid disorders. So good for you guys for hanging in there with me. I appreciate it. Um, Good for you. Good for me. Good for us. All right. Well, that'll do it for lipid disorders. Thank you for tolerating the somewhat poor quality there. Did you guys notice the window air conditioning in the background? Hopefully you didn't. Hopefully you were studying because that was some pretty intense information. And hopefully all of it is largely correct. Uh, You know, medicine is kind of an ever-evolving, ever-changing place to be. And especially with trying to study for the pants, because the pants is at least one to two years behind. Um, So it's it's hard. Even when the guidelines change this year, stuff that's on our boards is from like two years ago. So it's hard to keep up with. And uh, anyway, if you have a question in your mind about things that I said, obviously go go look them up. Uh, you know, the, the more you interact with the material, the better obviously it is, right? That's that whole um, the philosophy of learning which is like you you need to have, quote, six touches with the material before you actually really know it. So like a touch is just considered an interaction with it, whether you're listening or writing it down. And of course, the more active you are with studying, the better it is. So um, I mean, don't get me wrong. I do a ton of podcast studying uh, like when I drive because I can't write and drive at the same time. That's a terrible idea. Um, But officially, the act of studying where you're taking notes or drawing or doing whatever works for you in your brain, of course, is the better way to do it. So if you've got a question about something that I said, just go look it up and you're welcome. So that'll do it for this episode. Uh, Thanks for tuning in. See you next time. Guys, I just came up with a hilarious mnemonic. Naya Sin is Naya not nice. Am I right? Am I right? Okay, so it's not that funny, but maybe a little bit interesting. Maybe it's so bad that you'll remember it now. Maybe, may, maybe, no. Okay, I'll see myself out.